0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Megan O'Rourke, Slate's culture critic, and joining me today are Troy Patterson, the television critic of Slate. Hi. Hi. And Katie Royfe, a professor at NYU and a a regular contributor to the Audio Book Club. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. Today, we're discussing The Night of the Gun, a memoir by David Carr, which is subtitled A Reporter Investigates the Darkest Story of His Life, His Own. It's the story of Carr's descent into alcohol and drug addiction in Minneapolis, mostly in Minneapolis, in the 1980s, and uh, a time when he was working as a reporter at various newspapers and alternative journals. And basically became uh, not only a, a heavy drinker but a heavy user of cocaine crack cocaine and then and then also would inject cocaine And eventually lost his job and ended up in and out of several rehab organizations. And so on the one hand, this would seem to be kind of a typical recovery memoir, that category that includes James Fry's A Million Little Pieces and many others. On the other hand, this is a memoir that's very much trying to distinguish itself from the category of recovery memoir by using the tool of reporting, The conceit of the book is that this is not just Carr remembering things and telling us about them. It's him going back and actually interviewing and videotaping all of the people he uh, knew then, his associates and his friends and his family with the idea of coming up with some kind of truth that is more objective, and also, I think, with the idea of questioning the notion of catharsis or transformation that that usually is built into the recovery memoir. So I just wanted to begin. There's a lot of stuff to talk about here, and I just wanted to begin by asking, is this actually a recovery memoir in the end or not? How conventional is it in that category of, of memoir? What do you think, Katie or Troy?
0: I think it's exactly conventional, and and it's about fifty percent unconventional in an interesting way. And to sort of talk my way into that, I'll begin with the title, which I think is a great title, kind of tough and noirish. And what uh, one of the things about the book that most attracts me to it is it's a kind of um, a hard-boiled tone, which. It's occasionally been underdone, but if you're a sucker for that kind of thing, then you will be a sucker for this kind of thing. In any event, the title refers to one night where, in Carr's memory, before he started working on this memoir, uh, that is reporting it, going back and audiotaping and videotaping interviews with his friends and lawyers and associates, and sort of a, a crazy night that followed um, – well, the the book begins with a St. Patrick's Day bender. Uh, he goes in the office the next day and gets fired, and that's cause for another bender – he in fact, gets the bender
1: never really ends right, right.
0: <laughs> um he gets uh eighty six from a bar. his friend leaves them he's really feels betrayed that his friend is uh, kind of ditched him in this moment of crisis. He shows up at the friend's place and he remembers the friend like waving a gun around and then calling the cops twenty years later, nineteen years later, revisiting the uh the situation, he sits down with a friend who remembers Carr being the one who had the gun, and that's. Kind of the initial jumping-off point for his explorations of memory and how it works, and and it turns yeah.
2: out that he was the one who had the gun, yes, as um, far as we know, analysis, as far as we can yeah. conclude. Right.
0: right. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's there is something unconventional about sort of this technique of the reported memoir throughout, and this also lends to the noirish quality. He shuttles between mm-hmm. his kind of memories and reconstructions of old incidents and his recent interviews with participants. And it's nice in that it makes structural something, it makes structural the sort of um, distance and perspective that any th- good memoir should have.
1: Yeah, I mean... It I builds mean, into the structure of contemplation of Yeah, that.
2: yeah, yeah. Right, and I mean, and I think it's such a great structure, and it's such a great premise, and it's very promising, and I think in the hands of another writer, it would have been much more interesting. Uh, and my problem with what I see as the limitations of his ability to use this, I do think it's a great way of reinvigorating this form that maybe people have gotten a little bit tired of, and especially the Recovery Memoir, which is a kind of familiar one. But there are certain limitations to just his writing or his intellectual ability to wield this tool. And and as an example I raise, one of the troubling issues in his life is that he there's physical violence, and he beats up his various girlfriends at various points. And he has all these moments where he goes back – and we'll investigate this thing. And he'll go and talk to the woman, you know, what – What? how did I beat you up? What did it – what was it like? And she'll describe it and he'll ask her questions. There's the reporter sitting there with his notebook. But he comes out with no interesting analysis. He mm-hmm. can't do anything except for I did this thing and it was bad and I feel bad about it. And he doesn't even feel that bad. He doesn't even explain how bad he feels about it or what it meant. And I just feel like if you're asking your reader to read endlessly – this you know re-reporting your own life which is already you know which is a slightly self-indulgent thing you're asking them to do you have to come out with something mm-hmm. and that's such an interesting complicated layered situation he beat up his girlfriends and all he can he just gets no deeper psychological truth out of it from the from the reporting and i just feel like he should have gotten more out of this reporting I yeah. um, and out of this out of this Process than he ends up getting. Yeah. And I don't think he adds that much to just the story itself, which is I did a lot of drugs, I drank a lot, and I acted like
1: an asshole to a lot of people. Yeah. I want to come back to Troy in a second <laughs> um, to hear, because I think there's a part two to his statement, but I just want to second that, absolutely. I really felt that the place the book started to ex- expose its seam. Like, you sort of have the the metaphor that kept coming to mind was that this was, you know, someone who's sewing a dress and showing the seams, you know, like the, the sort of design, putting the seams on the outside. But you – there's an incredible suspicion of that idea of catharsis throughout the book, that idea of, like, recovery and catharsis, which is one actually I think that um, incidentally is, is very important in AA and NA, that, you know, you don't ever – treat yourself as a recovered addict. You're still an addict living day to day, so it makes sense to me that... I thought that was an interesting part of... kind of building in and exposing the transparency of that process, too. But yes, when he goes back and talks to the old girlfriends, that's the place where... exactly the place where I thought, wow, you're not... this tool that you're using of reporting and actually getting their voices (coughs) into your narrative, which is really... their actual voices now, really transcribed, not just remembered. That's where it just... You get that and then it stops. And I tried to think about, well, what's the point of that? Well, I suppose the point is documentary authenticity, that here we have – we're getting to – see. I mean, on the one hand, I've never read someone write about this particular thing in this way in such a memoir. And so we get that. we get he doesn't really like, write about it. But he it. doesn't really write about it because you're right. He doesn't talk about his own – takeaway from but, and that. But he also doesn't get the and dynamic. I, he doesn't get,
2: he just so superficially glosses over what happened in those relationships. Well, it
1: really left me with a lot of questions. Why was he, was it just the drugs and the drinking? Is there something angry? And, you know, you do, you start to look for the psychological explanation <laughs> in the absence of anything else. And so when I'm, I'm often actually suspicious of those psychological explorations, but I had this funny thing where in the absence of it, I thought, well, what is this book trying to offer us instead? And I think actually toward the end of the book it does grow much more conventional and I want to just come back to Troy because I feel like he was going to say something about that
0: but Oh, I was, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm almost tempted to think of this as kind of um sort of a st- it's almost a structural principle of the book whether the author realizes it or not. This, this is this kind of ongoing tension that's played out yes. um sort of about his <laughs> his kind of like reluctance his, his reluctance to fall fall into the the usual tropes and structures of a of an addiction memoir uh, there's kind of a tension between that and this desire to get at something quote unquote deeper or to sort of avoid cliche so it, it's sort of a running theme so in early on in page twenty five it's saying the arc of the attic has become as warm and familiar as a hallmark movie, the textured childhood, the abasement, the epiphany, the relapse, the ultimate surrender. Dead addicts don't leave behind an uplifting tract, so the narratives are generally told by people who can go on Oprah and stand like a barker in front of their abasement. Which, which is, is a n-
1: pretty good a-
2: description of yeah. this
0: book. You know, in some ways it is. It, it keeps kind of returning to the story behind the story, the story around the story. There's one bit where this is in his, you know, after... Um, over a, a decade of sobriety, he's talking to his boss at the um, at the New York Times about writing this book, and the boss says to him, "You know the part about where you dust yourself off and take over the world?" He asked. I said, "Yeah, that shit is so boring. Nobody hmm. wants to read about that." And yet he does Go kind on. of give us the boring shit to read. Yeah. Um,
2: he also gives the smugness of his current life. He finally gets married. He has these kids who miraculously turn out wonderfully his wife is like this saint who is, you know, he doesn't deserve, but yet somehow he's ended up in this perfect life. Right. So he gives you the perfect life at the end that is demanded by that. That bothered
0: me too. I wouldn't call it smugness so much as a kind of, I mean, we feel, I felt, sort of pleased for Carr, the, the, the character that he'd kind of shaped himself up and been able to sort of. Raise a family, uh, but Carr, the writer uh, sort of he allows himself a lot more cliches in the second half of the book yeah. uh, than he he does in the first. Uh, and at some points, you know, he talks about uh, he reprints here an old uh, column he wrote about his life as a single father. Uh, that's something we ought to make clear: is that uh, in the depths of his uh, drug addiction, Carr's... I, I don't believe they were they married at the time. He no, his girlfriend, no his girlfriend. Uh, his girlfriend um, delivered twin daughters prematurely and uh, she was she smoking was crack, crack when her water it, broke. Yeah, yeah. Um, at any rate, once he'd sort of gotten back on his feet, he'd, uh, he would was writing a column about life as a single dad for a family newspaper and it reprints a bit of a column here about cooking eggs in a hole. And, and he writes about rereading himself. Uh, peddling back through the columns I wrote for Family Times, I realized that I had turned on a dime, morphing from a big, nasty thug into one of those horrible, gooey parents who thinks everything his kids do is extraordinary. So, yeah, what, what Katie calls smugness, I might call gooeyness instead. Mushiness, okay. as one of the girls <laughs> described
1: some um, gummy bears. But, yeah, I mean, there's another there's another quote that I thought was very important that's on page 184 that says, it's about, again, this question of writing the memoir. And I think, you know, yes, there are a couple of things that's important just to say about this book. I mean, so, on the, so yes, it's a book that incorporates into its own narrative the making of its narrative. So there are these interviews that we get with other people in Carr's life. He also tells us about where he met them, when he met them, again, what, that, what the person is like now. So you have this built-in kind of transpa- seeming transparency to the process. There are also, throughout the book, um, photographs, and clips of columns that Carr wrote, as Troy was just saying, and these documents from various um, arrests or admissions to, you know, recovery facilities and so on and so forth, all of which are there to, you know, I think there's, I think um, to write a recovery memoir now is to invite the... uh, you know skeptical raised eyebrow of is there some fabrication here especially after James Fry's a million little pieces which this book rivals in some of the store the awful awful stories that it tells but it's very careful to document the kind of give you a scaffolding around those stories of, of documents um, and interviews that tell you these are real, these stories really w- were happening. Um, but just to, to kind of go back to this, yes, he, he writes on 184, I had no understanding of the fundamental audacity of writing a memoir. I do now. It presumes a level of interest <coughs> in my life that I had not historically displayed and also has an embedded promise that something will be learned. Even with the gimmick of reporting, my addiction narrative arrives at some very common lessons. Too much of a bad thing is bad. Everybody laughs and has fun until they don't. If you don't sleep and eat, but drink and drug instead, you will lose jobs, spouses, and dignity. And he goes on to say the lessons of the recovery narrative are important, but even more prosaic and to tell you that, you know, in the next chapters you will be unsurprised to learn that once I stopped doing narcotics and alcohol, things improved. Which raises this question then of, like, okay, if we're going to be unsurprised to learn this, what is the point of re- the, new, the rest of this book, just, kind just of, you And do you know? and I, I do think there's this real tension? I don't actually know how Carr should should but. have navigated this. And I guess one question is, like, A, just did not point, put too fine a point in it. Did we like this book or not? I went in and out of like I actually kind of liked Carr, the character at certain points, and and there was a sort of second half of the book about descending back into the alcohol use and the you know after two thousand and one, where I really related to the narrator actually much more than I had in the first half of the book.
2: I just I want to compare it. I mean I, I absolutely yeah. didn't really I really didn't like yeah. the book. I think more than both of you two, but I don't think the conventional recovery narrative has to be boring and has to be yeah. predictable. And I think, for instance, I would point to the poet John Berryman's. Um, brilliant and unfinished recovery, um, Mm -hmm. which he wrote, he killed himself just before he could finish it, um, which was about his experiences at Hazelden, which is actually the same institution that Carr went to. And I would point to Carolyn Knapp's Drinking a Love Story, which is Mm -hmm. a much superior book to this, Um, and in certain ways, more conventionally a memoir, but more introspective, more richly written, more... um, uh, more complicated fundamentally mm-hmm. and more intelligent, I think. And I, I don't think mm-hmm. that the memoir – I mean, the memoir is as good as its writing and it's as good as the story it's telling. And I just i just don't think he's a compelling enough – he doesn't create a persona here that you care about or that you find compelling. And he tells stories that are lurid, sure, but I just don't think that's enough. He doesn't get into them deeply enough. Well, it
1: raises enough. a question of does self-consciousness work? Like does not having confidence in your genre and oh, endlessly exposing that, does – can that be shaped into a kind of story, Troy? Yeah,
0: yeah. can it? Um,
1: I think it can.
0: Does it happen it does here? It does it here. I mean, <laughs> by a more intelligent writer, <laughs> I think it is. Books have been yes. arguing with their genre since, yeah. no, since exactly. Shandy or something. Exactly. Um, so, no, I think the the book is maybe about 50 or 60% successful in mm-hmm. in kind of – it sort of it poses questions. It kind it sort of acknowledges its own inherent problems without finding Solving a way them. to solve them. Yeah. And, and so I, I'd, I'd actually be curious to know from from Katie the of uh, the, the Berryman book and the the Carolyn Knapp book that you mentioned. Beyond the, the sort of texture of the prose, is there kind of anything in the the narrative that keeps the 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 kind of obvious and prosaic middle and end of stories like this um, <laughs> from being quite so prosaic?
2: Well, I mean, obviously in Berryman's particular... Berryman's, by the way, I should mention Recovery, is not technically a memoir. It's a novel, but it's a novel so autobiographical as to be actually so a memoir.
1: that brings to mind another book I was going to mention, which is Frederick Exley's A Fan's Notes, which yes, is also a another book one. worth thinking about in this category. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, but I, I don't think that... Just having an up the uplifting ending of recovery and redemption is necessarily damning. Now Berryman actually avoids that, and his uplifting ending was that he killed himself, you know, jumped off the bridge. But so actually, um, it is a
1: memoir from someone who doesn't survive. Right, it is it's a it is a memoir of
2: the person who can't go on Oprah, you know, and many of the dream songs and his poems he dealt with these same issues, but he went much more deeply into the pain and into this into what turns you into an alcoholic in the first place, what are the other issues going on in a life, as does Carolyn Knapp in Drinking a Love Story. She actually addresses much more, um, she struggles with, in a much more honest way and a much more compelling way, you know, the kind of this deep, nameless, indescribable melancholy that led her into this situation in the first place, along with this kind of hedonism and this need for excitement. And I feel like he just doesn't, you know he and he, he does he apologizes. You know I'm sorry I left my two twin baby infants for hours in the car by themselves while I went into the crack house. But he doesn't ever go deeper into how he feels or why he's there. We just mm. see I did this you thing, know, I did that thing. You
1: know it's funny because it sounds like what Troy liked about the book, which is its hard boiled persona, which I think is kind of Maybe integral very... to the book in some way, or it's it's its project is exactly in some. Was what you didn't like because you can't have the hard boiled persona and really delve into the kind of inner life. But I, so I was trying to think while I was reading it is there a way to have the hard boiled persona or the kind of tone or method of writing and also? what would have made me what would have drawn me a little bit more into this because i had the experience with this book of being drawn in and then kind of pushed back out and drawn in and pushed back out and i think it had something to do just with the structure of the writing where there were these stories that would begin to be told and then Carr would step back and say and then i visited this person 20 years later and my memories proved to be erratic and there was a kind of just re- simple repetitiveness to that that at a certain point as a reader i thought okay i got that point you know you you made it actually quite succinctly and powerfully and it's a powerful point but I don't need it made over and over. And the parts of the book that almost I liked the best were the parts where he was describing, like, what it was like to smoke crack, mm-hmm. what it was like to wake up. I mean, there's a description of what it's like to wake up as an addict and kind of take stock of the room around you and sort of do this damage assessment. Like, what's happened? Who's with me? Where am I? What am, mm-hmm. what meeting am I not at? And that was the writing that I kind of responded to the most because it was writing as as – just was telling me about the experience, and it has nothing to do with recovery or not recovery. It's just simple description, and it kind of remind me of there's a book I read recently. I don't know if either of you have read by this woman, Kate Braverman. Have I, either of you ever read her? No. She's sort of a fiction writer, and just read this book. She was an addict for a long time, and I read this book, this novel <laughs> called Lithium for Medea. That it's just it's a weird book, but it has these kind of great descriptions of kind of lyrical descriptions almost of like being pulled back into using, you know, and being pushed out and pulled in and like what the sensation of pleasure was. And, you know, again, maybe I'm wanting a different book from the one that Carr set out to write. But to me, those were almost the most successful parts of the book.
2: I agree with you. I, you know, and I I think some of this material is better handled maybe by a fiction writer you know, my sister was a heroin addict, and she actually lived in Minnesota in the same period. And she's written fiction about recovery and about mm-hmm. being a heroin addict and about addiction. And I do feel like the way in which she gets that experience is is deeper, is just deeper. And I think some of the frustration of this book is the frustration of reading, you know, like 400 newspaper articles all at once sewn together. Mm-hmm. That what we're coming up against is the limitations. And I mean, you can call it hard-boiled, but I, I really think the other thing to call it is newsy. You know, it's mm. a newspaper reporter's version of mm. the story. And the problem is that's limited for a book reader. You know, t- if you're going to sit down and commit this level of time to somebody, you want to get farther into it. And I think the New York Times Magazine excerpt, which this book was excerpted in the magazine, worked a lot better because it actually worked better as a shorter story that you just mm. read as a news story.
0: Right. Uh, mm-hmm. No, that's a that's a good point. Uh, I mean, among the things I would say is I, I feel like, from where I sit, I, I think that Katie's not giving the book quite enough credit for its level of thought that the way that he sort of tells stories and tells the story of telling the story allows him to do these riffs on the nature of memory some of which are better than others. But see
2: I think the riffs are where I really am not with him because I think he's weak when he does the riffs.
0: Well I think that they they help sort of like obliquely kind of point toward something. I can there's there's a vision of like a soul at work here that yeah, that I goes beyond true. the the um, the limits of a of a newspaper columnist, but yeah, you 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 are right to observe that it, it it's very much kind of a a newsman's memoir. That's kind of part of the persona, which I sort of find charming. Is this kind of blustery, kind of tough, belligerent, scrappy guy? The book has this sort of feel of uh, at points. It's kind of like a collage of. Barstool stories—that is to mm-hmm. say, that David Carr, even when sober, is still uh, like a bombadant, yeah. you know. Yeah, he's still a barfly. For, for good yeah. sometimes, and also for real.
1: Yeah. Well, it does. I try. I think you're right that it does. There are places where he just takes pleasure in recounting some of the fun that was had. And here's what I liked about the book, because what I what I didn't like, or what where I got pushed out of it, was this structural repetitions and the kind of the places where, like Katie, I felt that Carr wasn't as like didn't didn't push forward to a new place. And one question I asked myself reading this book is because like, well, he's not gonna he's resisting the story of catharsis. So what is he offering me? Like what am I learning or what am I? And I think that one of the things he does is he really does try to portray what it's like to live as an addict. I ended up feeling that the book was. Kind of that 's what it was trying to do with the obsession about memory and the constant that, that almost it was trying to enact what it 's like to be getting up every day and you have to remind yourself these things. I can easily go down this path, I think i 'm in control, but i 'm not you know and and I liked most of the places where he just told me things that seemed like they would be true, like he goes through a lot of the slogans they use in recovery, life is. Something like life is what you do when you start living, or living is. And there are a lot of them are really cliched and kind of sappy. And but he's like, you know what? These kept me alive. And I thought, well, that's really true. You know, that is really true for addicts. That you know, the, and and even for people suffering from depression or, you know, there are these moments in your life where you, you kind of go back to a really bedrock language that seems very cliched, but in those moments becomes imbued with a kind of meaningfulness. And that's almost like part of the problem of trying to write about it is that almost the very language you use to get yourself past these unpassable places has become cliched, but actually the the feelings or the what's at stake is not cliched right? What's at stake is life and death or survival and, or pain and something approaching happiness. And it just, I I think what was kind of interesting to me about the book was the way in which it really conveyed actually how difficult an experience this is to talk about almost, because it's an ongoing experience. It's not something. So in that sense, I thought he got away from the convention of the recovery memoir. But the very end of the book is a lot of summary about, as you say, his career, his where he's gotten to, his family, his daughters. And, um...
2: and there's just, I mean, I think there's a lot of self-congratulation in this book, even in the parts. And this is what is a strange uh, side effect of recovery literature is that there becomes like a bragging of how bad things were. It's almost like taking a perverse kind of pride in how mm. bad things are you know, it was so bad, it was this bad. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like James Fry lying in that direction to make it worse. It's almost like there's Mm -hmm. a kind of strange, perverse pride in the lows of the book. And then at the end, there's a strange – I mean, I just – usually one doesn't talk about one's family or one's children or one's wife in the way that he does because it's too self-congratulatory for, like, Mm. the normal modes of life that we would have. And I just feel like in every aspect of this book – you know, and he has one time he has he throws a party and he get everyone gets a T-shirt that's like I'm one of David Carr's 100. I'm a close personal a close friend. personal <laughs> friend of David David Carr, and it's like a thousand people. And the thing is, I just there's something about this guy where I just. I find him unlikable, and I think it's that quality of self-congratulation that I imagine ran through his addictive period as well as his recovery period. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just feel it off the pages of this book in a way, like every page.
1: Well, there's one point where he describes looking back at himself and seeing himself described as narcissistic and manipulative and... The thought crosses one's mind: Is this still the same persona? I don't know, Troy. Did you have that feeling at all about the persona of this book? I mean, one could say that a memoir lives or dies by the charisma of the writer.
0: And I think he's quite. It seems to me charismatic uh, enough coming off the page. I don't know. Um, I just
2: don't get the charm. Like addicts are supposed to be really charming, and I just don't find him. I mean, I guess you found him. Troy found him kind of charming. I just feel like in you know, most addicts develop a sort of preternatural charm to make I think up he's for their trying to resist um, some of that their all the downsides of living near or around them. And I feel like he just doesn't have the charm. And maybe that's yeah, I mean maybe he's trying to resist it. Yeah. Maybe he you know whatever it is, but I'm sort of
0: Right. Again, I, I feel like I I responded a bit more to the to the kind of silences in the book than you did, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. I, I found that the the first half of the book more agreeable than you, because I think that he holds back from going too far towards romanticizing the bad old days, which is partly a matter of tone. I think that partly the the reported memoir structure kind of helps helps that uh, helps control and and distance it a bit. But again, I agree in the second half that it's you know as he's raising cute kids and marrying a lovely wife and you know talking about his career at some points when he's giving himself grades for being sort of like a tough boss or a tough but fair boss, and it almost feels as if uh, he's doing one of those, um, like a performance evaluation. Yeah, himself. it does feel um, a little
1: performance evaluation. Yeah, That's a perfect um, metaphor for it. But yeah. then
0: I, I, I also feel like there's a slackness to the writing in the second half of the book that almost makes it feel as if the writer on some level kind of knows that mm. things aren't quite up to snuff. I'm, I'm pointing again to, you know, later in the book, as a parent, I was the king of the ad hoc, scrambling not so much to keep up with the Joneses as to keep our heads above water and moving downstream.
1: Can you tell At, us what page that's on? It's so on I page see.
0: 293, mm-hmm. and the is uh, allowing himself sort of two cliches in mm-hmm. one sentence. Two mm-hmm. cliches and like, a mixed metaphor.
2: Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, All in one sentence.
0: So maybe that's, you know, the thing about reading a self-portrait like this. It's an invitation to... Well, Psycho- so again, the writer, but it's it's almost as if he's kind of like so abashed by the kind of necessary yeah. gooeyness that yeah he's, also that, right he's abashed. he,
2: he is abashed by, about the writing he yeah. is abashed by the necessary gooeyness, which you're right is almost to his credit I agree with you you sense in the second half of the book he's almost like ugh, you know himself but I don't know that that necessarily makes you want to read the sludge through it but my other problem with was with the daughters he raises these two daughters on his own which is hard recovering drug addict.
1: Ends up marrying he, someone who helps, who helps him. Who helps him? But you but know, five he, or six years where he's a long really long time alone when they're really quite a long time when they're quite yeah. young. Yeah.
2: And but the thing is, then it becomes clear. He interview again, being the reporter, he interviews his own daughters, mm-hmm. and it's clear that there's something that isn't okay with the daughters. At least one of the daughters about the whole situation that they grew up in. But he mm-hmm. just again doesn't explore it. Mm. He do, He 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 presents the material and he presents the interview. But there's something that he just doesn't quite develop about what the problem is. One of the daughters does feel like there's this problem in her life and the she problem seems anxious. But she, and she's mm. very anxious and there's something wrong, but he won't tell us what it is and that kind of that evasiveness it's it i what I don't like about it is it's seeming to be you know kind of transparent and oh, I'm putting everything on the table and I'm explaining my triumphant light ending here, but he doesn't actually. Hmm. go into For, it, and right. he's probably protecting the privacy of the daughter, right. I imagine, which one understands? Which right. one understands. But right. the problem is, you just can't do this. It's the same thing as going to the girlfriend, and you know, I beat you up, what did it mean to you? Okay, here's what it meant to me. It's just, it doesn't mean anything unless you do some, you go into it
1: on a deeper right. level. Well, here's a question I had reading the book, and, and now I have even more. Do you think that gender color is the way one reads this book? I mean, there's a, actually quite, I think, a lot of subtextual gender issues here. There's a lot of kind of discussion of being, whether he is or isn't a girly man. He uses the phrase girly man a lot. I just thought the language was funnily very gendered a lot of the time, like, oh, and then we did man stuff, you know, he'll say. And and I think because there are these girlfriends he beats up, and because he ended up raising two daughters and marrying somebody, and he says at one point there was a lot of estrogen in the house. And at the end he actually talks about the Jungian concept of having to blend the masculine and the feminine in order to be whole, and he says, actually, I think the maternal was really good for me. But in a way I was like, well, I I see that you were – care. I actually really liked the, some of the stuff about the daughters because I thought I just haven't read – many descriptions of a man writing about his family. So you know what? He's sentimental. It's not like the best writing in the world, maybe, but it's interesting to me, and I have the feeling he's trying to be honest about what it's like to take care of them when they're younger, at least. The the older, the, that interview you pointed to, Katie, I thought was problematic. But just to get t- back to the point, I, there were times when I think as a woman reading the book, I was like, wow, I really need him to explore why he's hitting these women, that I don't know if I were a man, I would have, I don't know. I, I normally don't become very aware of gender when I read. It's something I don't think about, that I'm a female reader. But I read reading this book, I kind of... I I know, that's why I want to ask. Reading this, I kept coming up against the fact that I was a woman, and he was a man. There was some wall there that I couldn't... Well, and also, maybe women aren't as into the like, then I had 12 drinks, and then
2: I had... then I went home and did coke. Like, those stories, those kind of bar stories, maybe aren't as, like, exciting to a woman, necessarily, but... Well...
1: Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's that. It's just more that when he starts to investigate, when he says things like, I was really bad to women, on the one hand, I'm like, okay, all right, fine. We, we accept that and we move on. But then when throughout the book, there's this kind of pervasive, seemingly pervasive concern with masculinity that seems to be bound up with the violence toward the women in a way that goes beyond just the alcohol and the drugs. I, just, I guess I did want... To know more, I think this is a very personal reading of the book. Though I think this is just like me no, what I, I would don't have think wanted. So I don't you know. think so, and I don't think it's a female thing. Anyway, I mean Troy, we're Troy, talking. Do you? What do you
2: think? I don't think it's a female thing because the problem is it's too big in all of our culture. If you're a man or a woman, it's a very big taboo to like hit or to beat hit. up a woman. Mm-hmm. And it was more than just like slapped her; it was like really beat up these women. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge taboo, and it does raise a lot of questions. That you sort of—it's not that I think he's the devil. I just Mm-mm. want him no. to explain what happened in that situation in a way that is more... just takes an account of it in a more detailed way. I
1: mean, the problem is, as he himself says, he doesn't really remember. And that is the problem. And I actually admire him for well, just sort of saying yeah. that and not trying of, to fill in. But he needs to get more in. of of the interview. It's complicated. He, also,
2: he doesn't have to remember. It's he can think back because... on it now. Well, okay. I will.
0: Well, I think like women... Well, no.
2: are... But he can think back on it now. He'll he well, no. be like, these are my
1: views right, of my views." This is of what I now, think now right. if I have to come yeah. up with an explanation.
0: I mean, yeah, I will first say... Before I cease defending him in his defense, I think he does get at least a little something out of the the interviews and kind of yeah. these women are speaking in the first person about their experiences and I like that more I think than Katie did, yeah by him and yeah. so i I think that this is an instance where the violence you know outside of the narrative <laughs> in the real world, the violence is more important to the victim than to the perpetrator that yeah. That's yeah, where the more interesting story is, and so we get a little bit of that can it be c- could there have been more, yes. This car often shy away from you know exploring this stuff beyond admitting his guilt in all senses of the word. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but even I, that just also- to interject
1: for one second, I mean, even that was kind of interesting, and I went back and forth because sometimes I was like, well, he's trying to honor their voices by not. But he needs the follow-up question. Then, kind of, here's the going he a all really it, good
2: right. reporter, right? He's a good reporter. He needs the follow-up question, and he doesn't ask it. Yeah. I think Troy was Let's exactly Troy right, right when yeah. he said. Could he have pushed it further? It's yeah. not that he has to do it in his own voice. What if he just right. asked ask them the them more three question. more questions that he right. needed to ask them to get the story? To and get more he does about is, their experience. I mean, I think you put it exactly right. He stopped. He just mm-hmm. got the information, and then he was like, okay, now I'm gone. He mm. didn't ask the follow-up question. There were like three he, more he needed to just get the story out, and he stopped. He didn't want the whole story. Mm-hmm. Right. He didn't get mm-hmm. the whole story, mm-hmm. and I think that's unsatisfying for a man, for a woman, just as a yeah. reader. Yeah, it's because you know Troy, there was a second part. Well, no, I, I, was I was rudely continue. cut you off. Yes,
1: I'm sorry. Um, <laughs>
0: to, to tie this back to two things we were talking about earlier: first, the the book's kind of uh, exoskeleton, sort of it's showing you what it's mm-hmm. going to do, and Uh, its cognizance of its own limits, and also his his riffs on memories. I want to go back to page 24 and read a bit that that goes (laughs) towards the stuff that we're talking about. Memory is an expression of hindsight as much as recollection, so my rear view must incorporate the fact that I was eventually redeemed from a life of drugs, alcohol, and mania. In this construct, the moments when I stumbled across a life-changing epiphany are vividly preserved, while the more corrosive aspects are lost to a kind of self-preserving amnesia. To be fully cognizant of the wreckage of one's past can be paralyzing, so we, or at least I, minimize as we go. Nowhere is that imperative more manifest than in memoir. Popular, liter- popular literature requires framing a sympathetic character, someone we can root for, or who is, as they say on the studio lot, relatable. Mm. If I said it was a fat thug who beat up women and sold bad coke, would you like my story? What if, instead, I wrote I was a recovered addict who obtained custody of my twin girls, got us off welfare, and raised them by myself, <laughs> even though I had a little touch of cancer? Now we're talking. Mm.
1: I thought that was a really great passage. Yeah.
0: yeah. And one that's uh, kind of frank and... Mm-hmm sort of emotionally bare in a way, but mm-hmm. it sort of bears its emotions only to let us know that there's only going to be so much more bearing of emotion. Right.
2: Do you know what the problem is with that? I mean, I agree with you. It's a good passage. But there's one thing that he does, which is it sort of relates to apologies. You can apologize, but it's not really enough. And you can say, oh, I don't, I can't. Tell the story, you know. I'm, I'm because my memory is going to protect me because I'm a memoirist. It, does, the fact that
1: he's acknowledging the flaw that's going to then come in the future of the book that doesn't negate the flaw. To see, me. I think that I would just be very simple about it. I just think that the writing doesn't maintain that level of clarity throughout. No, it just you doesn't. You know, it doesn't. It's not organized. It's just, and I just think that's for me. though I mean, I feel I would have the, the parts I liked are the parts where the writing was good. It had fewer cliches. It was a little, a little less some um, has a quality as he gets to the end of, of um, the project, the, the personal evaluation, but also of just kind of, like, getting it down to move mm-hmm. on. It just feels right. rushed. So I would put yeah. it that way. Yeah, well, and I think
0: it also sort of points, I think, towards what's inherently interesting about this book and what's inherently flawed in this book, is mm-hmm. that this, this book has, like, a double life as a mm-hmm. statement to his family and friends and as right. an entertainment for you and me.
1: Yes. Well, I think that's the question. What What is the book supposed to be? If it's not a recovery memoir, what is it? I don't actually know the answer to that question. Like he he goes on about I don't um, he, he voices his suspicions about catharsis, and so then I think is it a corrective? Yes, a little bit, but what else is it? I don't know. No, and it, it, the double life, I think the idea of the book having a double life is an interesting one. One other way it has a double life, I think, is that it's. it seems to me very much a text that is influenced by the author's fact that he's in AA and in NA. Like, there's just so much in the book that is infused with the philosophies of those specific programs. And I almost wish that that were made more explicit, because I think that's really interesting, what it's like to live in AA or NA, and where those philosophies You know, there are places where he talks about he wasn't able to kind of get with the higher power program, but he had this other... And to me, that was all really interesting because, again, it's the mechanics of what is it like to live... to live as an addict, not to create a package of a story about what it was, but to actually live as an addict. Did you feel in the end that there was catharsis in this... in the narrative, that there is a... ultimately it ends up participating in the recovery narrative.
0: That's an interesting question, one that's complicated by the fact that within the last 40 pages of the book, he suffers a big uh, relapse.
2: Yes. What I feel in this book, and maybe this is cynical, but I feel like sheer ambition. I Mm. feel Mm -hmm. the catharsis is like, somebody's going to give me a lot of money to write this book. (laughs) You know, I honestly feel that. And he includes all these rejection letters. Mm-hmm.
0: Well that's actually that's not that just includes but that's, he, the, 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 fr- the, that's, right. that's the the intermission. that's the intermission between the, the
2: entree. Right. He yeah. has like yeah. the, the you know, and then he's sort of showing all these people who weren't interested. His in George. Rejection oh, letters, oh, it's I important am. to say,
1: rejection letters. From of magazines. Magazines to whom he had pitched the story of being a cocaine addict in 1989, right. less than one year after he had recovered, right. quote unquote. I, I believe those are the dates. It may be erroneous. Yeah.
2: You know, I just, I guess I feel like the cynicism in this memoir, and it's mm. not, and maybe what I'm saying is the catharsis, the ending, the recovery, the redemption would be more convincing to me if it just felt more, It just had more emotional weight to it. I just Mm -hmm. didn't really believe it. I believe that he made it, you know, unlike a lot of people in this situation, like, his life Mm -hmm. came out okay, and he's, Mm -hmm. like, one of the lucky ones.
1: Okay, but with quite a lot of scarring, figurative and literal. I mean, he goes through cancer, and he talks at one point about all the organs he's had removed and how his body had been sort of damaged by one presumes there's some implicit connection to, to all the, I mean, I think for me, you know, and so I was thinking, is there catharsis? And I think, well, he's sort of resisting catharsis as a, I just think the book is ambivalent. It's ambivalent about itself. It's ambivalent about romanticizing the past or not. And, you know, and I'm sure that's actually quite what one, that seems to me to be probably what one feels about one's own life is ambivalent in certain ways. Right. That, that seems totally right to me. But it's just then a it's just a problem because when we read narratives we want yeah, I think something it is more a problem. than ambivalent. I think that you're giving we, credit or for we want ambivalent. Tristram Shandy or something or right. one infinite jest
0: or well I think it's also worth pointing out that the three of us are kind of reading this book you know as an entertainment as a piece of art with yeah. a critical eye <laughs> yeah. to think for instance about the the comments that appeared on the uh, underneath the story when it was <laughs> excerpted in the New York Times magazine yes a lot of the people who were responding it to it positively seem to find some kind of hope or right. inspiration or a useful But that was the article, not tale. the book,
2: which I think is very different. Well, but I think the, the book true, I think sure. it really was different as an article. I think it was much better I think the article, article was great, yeah.
0: But, uh, still, still, though, yeah. I think that many people who are seeking out a recovery memoir are looking to, kind of looking for some vicarious slumming. Others are kind of looking for a, a ratification of, of a kind of Bill W. Well, way of looking at the world. I'd be interested in so knowing too.
2: how this would play in the recovery world. Because as I say, like, you know, my sister's a heroin addict, and ex-heroin addict, and I I know that she didn't and wouldn't like this book. I know so um And I know a lot of yes. uh, people in recovery actually hate this book for a lot of reasons yes. and don't find it inspiring yeah. for a lot of reasons.
1: I think it would be split. I think I know, mm-hmm. too, I actually do know people who don't like the book. But I think Troy's point is a really salient one and important one, which is that it's not, and again, it's another way in which the book has a double life. It's trying to be an entertainment or a work for New York Times readers who don't have any issues with addiction. But it's also, I think, a book that is going to be read by a lot of addicts. And I think there are going to be a lot of addicts who relate to this book and find it very powerful. And I think it is going to be a kind of text for AA in a way that something like James Fry is A middle in Little Pieces, which is and in, I mean, I think this book is kind of socially responsible, I guess is what I might say about it. It seems to me like a very socially responsible book. And I, I didn't find that he was romanticizing his past. He was clearly ambivalent about it. He, there were moments of great pleasure and fun he enjoyed. But he's not also downplaying the amount of help he needed to get through it. And like something like James Fry's A Million Little Pieces is all about this kind of bravado and masculinity, and I did it myself, and you don't need AA, that's for pussies, you know. And I did think Carr's book was sort of quite self-consciously trying to be a corrective to that and to function as a kind of not just as an entertainment, but almost as like a socially responsible tract of here's what it's like. I agree. End. But before we come to a close, I don't know, any other any other thoughts? Well, I, I don't know
0: if I already beat this horse to death, but it did strike me that while well, he doesn't kind of romanticize decadence too terribly much, he does romanticize journalism in, uh, <laughs> yeah. in a pretty fierce way. At yeah. one point, I believe, re- referring to it, he's recounting a conversation with a friend, uh, calling journalism this thing of ours, like yeah. La like Cosa Nostra. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: and it's one thing we haven't talked about, all of us being journalists and what that part of the book is like to read. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if I'd be interested in this book if I weren't Mm. a journalist, Mm. it it did make it odd, uh, very strange in a way that very rarely in this book does does anyone's last name appear. It's like an Mm -hmm. AA meeting, which kind of gets strange once he starts writing about identifiable famous people. Yes, whom Um,
1: one can deduce who they are, people at the Times, for example.
0: Yes, Right. Even early in the book, back in in Minnesota, he was friends with uh, a guy named Tommy, who we understand was... Married to a woman named Roseanne, who had a sitcom. There's a picture of Tom Arnold in the and book. Rose- but, well, and Roseanne, yeah, It's both of them a, actually. Yeah. So that's odd. Mm-hmm. Merely odd, but.
1: Well, the journalism part of the book, there is a lot about journalism, and I, I guess again, that's where, that's when you were reading that passage, Troy, from early on. I thought, well, I like that passage, and I almost wish the book had filtered more closely in on that theme. But instead, it, it expands, it dilates to include a lot. And one question for me is, why include the whole? I understand why to include the alcohol relapse, but that is surrounded by quite a lot of padding about journalism and his career. And, and there was part of me that thought, well, why? Why not tell just the story of addiction, then have kind of a coda with the alcoholism? But this is also sort of a story about work in the end. And right. those two things sat slightly uncomfortably together.
0: Well, I, th- I think that there's a desire to... It doesn't... It's not a self-portrait as addict. It's a self-portrait of someone As As who... person. Has been. a good point. Mm-hmm. Uh, addicted, so it's. <laughs> I, I think I appreciate the the attempt to to paint a fuller picture, and it certainly seems like um, it's something that's philosophically in line with the tenets of yes thinking about recovery. Yes, um, I agree with that.
1: D- but did you feel it was imbalanced? I mean, I'm not saying that he shouldn't have written about his work or his. I, I think that he. But I guess well, what I'm questioning is: there's a lot of ending. There's like a lot of second half. Mhm. And there's yeah. a lot about here's the kind <laughs> of editor I was. Right.
2: Here's That's my all I mean. I don't think he should only focus and on the addicts because I yeah, don't
1: think that would have been right. I mean, think and I do think it's pretty race. amazing
2: yeah. and is to his credit yeah. that he did so well in spite yeah. of this addiction oh, my and god. kind of during this addiction.
1: I was like, god, I can't work as hard as this person. Right. right. <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> on somehow, my best days.
2: Right. You know? Somehow the fact that yeah.
1: while he's doing all these drugs, he's also doing like a zillion stories. So, he's
2: clearly a pretty
1: amazing guy, which he he, you know, He's clearly an amazing reporter and journalist. Which he knows you know, which and he knows. will <laughs> make you aware of in yeah, the course of the all, book. You know, but he, he tried to keep a lid on that a little. Uh, really? You know, yeah, went back and forth, I guess. But, yeah, but yeah, yeah. No, I mean,
2: I, and I do think, like, the, it is interesting how high – the high level of functioning on mm. so much yes. – on the drugs and alcohol. Because I do think there is a significant number of people, especially in journalism, but in mm-hmm. other fields as well, who just – can do a lot of drugs or drink a lot and still be functioning still on the highest level, and that is one of the fascinations yeah. of this book. And Carolyn Knapp, who was also a journalist, was also drinking a huge amount and yeah. doing fine in her career. Yeah, and that our, our our type, which is the addict, is somebody who loses everything, who loses their job, and loses you know, is sort of a homeless person on a park bench, is sort of
1: wildly know, inaccurate. Yes,
2: and that this yeah. idea that it's so It's actually frighteningly easy to function at a very high level doing almost destroying your life is what if there is a sort of news revelation of this book or there is something interesting in this book. I think that is always startling. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I thought that was a very that was a really interesting part. He draws a graph once of what he thinks his life was like before he kind of cleaned up. And he, he has it as a jag of ups and downs where he's like, I almost lost this, I almost lost But then he said in reporting it, he went back and found a different story, which is of just a steady upward rise and then a sudden drop. And I thought that was a wonderful mo- use of the reporting in the mm-hmm. book to talk about how a story looks very differently. I, he almost seemed to assume that his story was wrong, but I thought, well... No, your story is right and their story is right. right. And that's what's so complicated about being an addict. Well, we should bring this to a close, but is there any any last thoughts?
0: I have no last thoughts. No last thoughts.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so so much for joining us. For Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke. And thank you, Katie and Troy, for joining me here.
2: Thank Thank you. you.